0: God, we are so grateful that you are love. That you and your love created us to have relationship with you, to worship you, to enjoy you. And Lord, we confess that we fall short of that because of our sinfulness. And we are separated from you because of our sin. But Lord, in your love, we praise you that you sent your Son into this world to be born of the Virgin, to be laid in the manger, and to ultimately go to the cross to be the propitiation for our sins. There is no greater love than that, and we are so, so grateful to you, Lord, for it. Lord, may you transform our lives in light of your love for us through Christ. Lord, I beg of you to work in the hearts of those in this room who do not know you by faith, who have not experienced your love, who have not repented of their sin, turned away from their sin, and trusted completely in the work of Jesus. God, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts as your word is uh, proclaimed this morning. That by your Holy Spirit, you would do a work in their hearts and draw them unto yourself. That you would give them a new heart, that they would be born again, and that they would truly experience your love this morning. And Lord, for those of us whom you have called by faith, Lord, may we worship you in response to uh, the, the fact that you have saved us. May we worship you this Advent season, knowing that you loved us so much that you sent your Son to give us true hope, to give us true peace, to give us true joy. And Lord, may you also cause us to love one another more and more in light of your love. And as we do that, Lord, would we display the glorious love that you have given to us, to the world around us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first point is that God is love. God is love. It is in the very nature of God, love is. It is in the very nature of God. One author says... Uh, God's love is the divine attribute that indicates God's disposition to be self-giving and for the good of the other. So God's love is the divine attribute that indicates God's disposition, his inclination to be self-giving and for the good of the other. So love is others-focused. Love is sacrificial and giving of ourselves for the benefit of others, So again, love is an attribute of God. Love is in the very nature of God. Whenever Paul is praying for the Ephesians in chapter three of the letter to the Ephesians, he prays for them that that they would experience the love and that they would come to the understanding of God's love. And he describes it this way, that, that they would come to the knowledge of the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. So as we talk about God's love, we can certainly explain it from what we see in the scriptures, but at the same time, we can't fully comprehend God's love because it is so great. It is so vast. It is so deep. It is so long. And so so there's one sense which we, we can understand it, but we can't fully comprehend it. That's how great God's love is for us. And so God's love can't be measured, but I pray that as we just take a few minutes to unpack different aspects of God's love, that you would just be encouraged. You'd be encouraged by the fact that we have a loving God who desires to be in a relationship with us, and he cares deeply for us. I know we've been going through the book of Revelation over the last uh, several months, and we see judgment week after week after week, which is certainly uh, a part of who God is as well. He is a just God, and we'll hit on that some in this sermon as well. But I just pray that as we talk about God's love, that you will be encouraged, that your soul will be refreshed uh, as we go through that this morning. So I'm just going to unpack several different aspects of God's love for us, and I pray that it encourages you. So God's love, first of all, has always existed. It has always existed. So God is eternal Uh, the the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed. There's no beginning and there's no end with God. Uh, The Father has eternally loved the Son and the Spirit. The Son has eternally loved the Father and the Spirit. And the Spirit has eternally loved the Father and the Son. So God's love has always existed, even before creation, even before the beginning of time, God has been love, and it has existed within the Godhead. Secondly, God showed his love in creation, so God didn't need anything else to complete himself to make, his, uh, make him uh, more complete, but he did it in his love. In his love, he created mankind. He created you and I and all that is around us in his love, and he created us so that we would be in relationship with him. Our first thought, and I, I, rightfully so, is, is the fact that God is holy, right, that God is distinct. He is set apart from us. He is above us and separated from us, and, and that is true. But when we talk about God's love, we see the fact that God is also imminent, uh, meaning that He is close to us. He desires to be in a relationship with you and I. He wants to intimately know us, and He intimately cares for us. And so God desires relationship with His creation, with His, with mankind. God's love is his inclination to give of himself for the good of his creation. For the good of you and I, he gives of himself. So God's love has always existed outside of time, in eternity. But God also showed his love in creation as well. And God uh, continued his love for his creation even after the fall of mankind. Even after Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, Sinned against him, disobeyed his command. God continued his love. He continued to demonstrate his love for his people by fulfilling his covenant promises to his people—that he was going to preserve a people for himself, that he was going to protect them, that he was going to deliver them. And so God's love existed and continued uh, even after the fall of mankind, even after mankind had rebelled against him. God continued to pour out his love to us, even though we were undeserving of his love. And God's chief demonstration of his love is in Jesus. And we'll, talk, we'll unpack that uh, here in just a little bit deep more deeply. But this is the primary means by which God displays his love, is that he came and took on flesh and lived among sinful mankind, and he did so in order to rescue us from sin and death. He came to save us from the fall, to save us from His judgment through the work of Christ. So in the Incarnation, we see the greatest display of God's self-giving love for His created beings, you and I. So God, God's chief demonstration of His love is found in Jesus. God also displays His love in sustaining us, in sustaining His children. Philippians 1, six, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So God's love sustains his children. Uh, after we come to faith in Christ, uh, after we come to know him by faith, he continues his love in keeping us. Those whom he saves, he will also keep until the end. And so we see God's love in that as well. We also think about God sustaining us in just that he takes on our burdens. Think about Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30. Uh, Jesus says to come to me, all you who are uh, heavy laden and burdened, and I will give you rest. Uh, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. That is where we find rest for our souls. When we come, when we have all the heaviest burdens that we could have in this life, and we can come to the Lord, and we cast those upon him, and he sustains us. He takes those burdens off of his children. And so he sustains his children. Even through all the trials, all the burdens that we, we face here on this earth, he sustains us in his love. Another aspect of God's love that I want to take a little bit more time on is the fact that God displays his love as our father. He displays his love to us as our father. So unlike All earthly fathers, whether you had a a great dad or a really bad dad, our heavenly father is perfect. He is perfect in every way. He loves and he is a perfect and good father. So, as we think about him being our father, I I think it starts uh, one way we could start is just thinking about how we come to the kingdom. Whenever Jesus and his disciples were walking on the road at one point, uh, his disciples are arguing who is going to be the great? who's the greatest in the kingdom? Who is the, who is the greatest? And we see this in Matthew 18, 1 through 4, and this is what it says. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? They're arguing about who's going to be sitting on the right, who's going to be sitting on the left of his, of his throne. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them. And he said to them, truly I say to you, unless you turn to become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So it's very counterintuitive from our human standpoint. They're thinking, oh, I'm this great disciple who loves you, Lord, and who does all these great works. But he says, no, you need to become like this child in order to enter into the heaven, into heaven. So what does it mean to enter into the kingdom as a child? Well, I think in part, it means that we are to completely entrust ourselves to the Lord. So there's nothing that we can do in of ourselves to, to save ourselves. We have to simply just come uh, as a child, helpless and needy, and put all of our hope, all of our trust in, in our Father, knowing that He alone will save us and He alone can sustain us. There's nothing in it of ourselves that is lovely to Him. We are sinful and we have rebelled against Him, and so we have to enter into the kingdom of heaven as a child. So a child, if you think about an earthly uh, you know, parent-child relationship, children are dependent on their parents, right? As, obviously, as they get older, they get less and less dependent. Uh, the stage that Kayla and I are in, uh, we have two young children. Uh, we have a two-and-a-half-year-old and a, and a, and a five-month-old. And so uh, there is not much that they can do on their own, right? So they are completely dependent upon Kayla and I. So we have to, this morning, we had to wake them up. Uh, we had to get them out of bed, pick them up. We had to dress them, feed them breakfast, um, give them medicine uh, that took both of us to give uh, to our daughter. Uh, it, so they're helpless, right? Whenever we bathe them at night, we, uh, they can't do it on their own. We're, we're there doing it for them. Uh, all of these things uh, we are doing for them. They are helpless and needy. And uh, they wouldn't make it if they didn't have us or somebody else to take care of them. And that's the the same way that we ought to view our fathers. We enter into the kingdom. Humbly recognizing that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves and enter the kingdom uh, of heaven. Uh, It is only by simply trusting in the work of Christ, knowing that he alone can rescue us. uh, That that is the only means by which we can enter into uh, heaven. So... God's not going to literally bathe us and give us our medicine, uh, but uh, in a a spiritual sense, we are to completely entrust ourselves to the Lord. That's that's what that means. Uh, We are completely entrusting ourselves to him, uh, knowing that we are dependent upon him completely. And praise God that we have a perfect and trustworthy father who knows what is best for his children and whom he loves dearly. So we enter into the kingdom as a child. But we also uh, recognize that our Father is the one who provides us with our daily bread. Everything that we have is from God. In the Lord's Prayer, we say, give us this day our daily bread. So this is us praying to the Father, recognizing that we can't provide for our own selves, that everything that we have comes from Him. Um, And so we pray, our Father, uh, give us this day our daily bread. In a similar sense, in Matthew chapter 6, which is just right after the Lord's Prayer in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, we see that we are dependent on God for even uh, clothing and food. Uh, And in in Jesus talking about not being anxious, uh, he, he talks about the fact that we should come to the Lord, who is the one who provides us with food and with clothing, and that we shouldn't be anxious about those things. So he is the provider of everyday needs, even as basic as food and clothing. Romans eleven thirty six 36 says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. One of the very small implications of that is we see for from him are all things. From him are all things. Everything that we own is not really ours. We are merely stewards of it. It is a gift from God. And so all things are from God and we are to use things, all things for the glory of God. So everything we have is a gift from the Lord. So praise God that we have a father who richly provides for our needs as his children. Another aspect of God being our father is the fact that he loves to hear from his children. He loves to commune with us. He loves to hear his children cry out to him in prayer. God calls us to persistently pray to him, to pray for every little need, to pray with, without ceasing. In the parable of the persistent widow, in Luke chapter 18, uh, we, we see that we are to pray persistently. I'm going to read that. And you can just listen as I, as I read it. And he told them a parable, Jesus telling them a parable, to the effect that they ought always to pray and to not lose heart. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect, who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So this widow annoyingly came to this judge day after day after day crying out to him, saying, give me justice against my adversary. And the only reason that the judge gave justice was because he was annoyed by her, because she, he kept, she kept on bothering him by coming to him day in and day out. And Jesus used this parable to say that we should pray in the same way. We should come to the Lord annoyingly. It's not annoying in his eyes, but in, in our eyes, it, it might be with our, if you have young children who come to you with every little thing, Uh, It may be annoying at times, right? But our Father, our Heavenly Father, never gets annoyed. He wants to hear from His children. We get to commune with our Father because He loves us and He wants to hear from us. He wants to have relationship with us. So God invites us and desires that we would pray to Him in this manner. He wants us to come to Him for every little thing. and, And relate this to entering into the kingdom of heaven like a child. A child is completely dependent on his parents. Well, we are completely dependent upon our heavenly father. And so we should pray to him for every little thing. No little thing is too trivial to pray and bring to the throne room to pray to our father. No little thing. And it's encouraging, I I think, in, in relating this to as we've heard our son Samuel, who's two and a half, in his prayers, he prays for every little thing. And, and you know, I, and I'm convicted of that. And, you know, it's, it's, that's how we should be. We should thank God for every little thing. Every little piece of food on the, on the, on the plate, um, every little thing is a gift from God, right? And, and so it's encouraging and convicting to see uh, our young son just be praying for every little thing to, to the Lord. And so that's how we should be praying as well, we should enter the kingdom as, as a child, and we should also pray as a child. Uh, pray as a child, because he is our Father, and he wants to hear from you and I. And as he hears our prayers, he lavish, lavishes us with his good gifts. They may not be exactly what we had hoped or wanted or in the timing that we wanted, and we, or we may never get what we prayed for at all. But in writing about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this in Matthew seven eleven. If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good good things to those who ask him? So if you, uh, as a humanly father or mother, know how to give good gifts to your child, think about how much more our Heavenly Father knows how to give good gifts to his children. So he gives good gifts to his children, to those who ask him. Now again, it may not be exactly what we wanted or exactly when we wanted it, We may not ever get it at all, but he knows exactly what we need because he is a loving and a good and caring father. The last aspect of God as our father is the fact that our father disciplines his children. Now, when we first hear the word discipline, a lot of times we have a negative reaction, right? We think that it is not good. Um, And so uh, I know teenagers or young children in the room, you may hear the word discipline, and you think, oh, man, that's not good. That's not good because whenever I hear the word discipline, I think about my parents, uh, me being in trouble, me discipline, my parents disciplining me. Well, it is a good thing. It is a good thing for our father to discipline his children. He disciplines us in love, just as a, an earthly father or mother disciplines his children in love. So our, our heavenly father disciplines those whom he loves. And, and you, know, you can look at Hebrews chapter 12, uh, 3 through 11. But our Heavenly Father disciplines those whom He loves, just as an earthly father disciplines uh, His children in love. He disciplines us for our good so that we would be made more holy. So we are disciplined whenever we are rebelling against God, sinning against God, and He does that so that we will be made more holy. And our purpose in life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And those whom He has ju- have justified by faith in Christ— will be sanctified because we will be glorified. And so part of our, our sanctification process is the fact that we are going to be disciplined by our Father. Discipline is painful in the moment, but it bears lasting fruit. It bears lasting fruit in our lives. I think about John chapter 15 as well, that, uh, that Jesus prunes us, the Father prunes us. And it hurts when you prune, when you cut off a bush, but you do it so that all the other branches will bear much fruit, right? And so that's the same idea with discipline, uh, is that it's painful for the moment, but there will be long-term fruit from our loving father disciplining his children. So God is love. It is in his very nature. And love is not merely theoretical, but God tangibly displays it through his actions. And the chief way that God demonstrates his love for us is by sending his Son into the world to save us from our sins. So God displayed his love uh, by sending his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God displayed his love in the greatest way imaginable to, by sending his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. We see this in verses 9 and 10. So first of all, Jesus is the unique Son of God. He is the unique son of God. So John uses the language only son. And the the essence there is that he is unique. Uh, There is none like Jesus. And there's none like Jesus because he is the exact imprint of the father. He, He is the exact image of God. Hebrews 1, 3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. So Jesus is God in the flesh. There is no other like Christ because he is fully God and fully man. And this demonstrates the depths of our Father's love for us, that he would send his only son into the world to leave his perfect fellowship, perfect communion with the Father and the Spirit in heaven and come to this sinful earth and to, and to, to take on flesh and to die a sinner's death so that we could be rescued. There is no greater love than that. So Jesus took on flesh and entered this sinful world in order that we would have life. He took on flesh and entered this world so that we would have life. John 1, 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the eternal Word who created all things, has now taken on flesh and dwelt among mankind, has literally tabernacled with us, put up his tent with us as we see in John chapter one. He has put up his tent with his creation. He's taken on flesh and he's dwelt among his creation. Jesus' birth fulfilled many prophecies and since we're in the Advent season, I just wanna mention a couple of these uh, in, in the fact that he has entered this, this sinful world um, and see some of these prophecies that he's fulfilled. First of all, he was born of the virgin. Isaiah 7:14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a, a son, a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And in Luke chapter 1, as Gabriel is uh foretelling Jesus' birth to Mary, uh, she responds by saying, "How will this be since I'm a virgin?" And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So Jesus, entering the world, he fulfilled the prophecy of being born of the Virgin. Secondly, he was born in Bethlehem. Micah 5.2 says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So in Luke chapter two, as Joseph and Mary are going back to Bethlehem because there is a, a census being taken, and Joseph is from the line of David, uh, th- this is where Jesus is born. Uh, Mary was close to uh, being full term, and uh, and Jesus is born, and that is where he is laid in the manger in Bethlehem. So thirdly, Jesus is the eternal king from the line of David. So we see the promise that there is going to be an eternal king in the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7. But we also see this in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. So there is this promise of the eternal Davidic king, and Jesus fulfills that. We see that very language in Luke chapter 1, 31 through 33. So Jesus is the eternal king uh, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, who rules eternally with justice and righteousness. So it is a historical fact that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem to be the eternal king that came from the line of David. So Jesus is the God-man who took on flesh, fully God and fully man. And Jesus came into this world to bring life to dead sinners. He came in this, into this world to, to, bring alive, to make alive those who are spiritually dead. We are all born into sin. We are all spiritually dead Ephesians 2 talks about, uses that exact language, that we are dead in our sins and trespasses. Ephesians 2.5, listen to this, church. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So the means by which he made us alive was through the work of Jesus. Through his, through his work on the cross, by his grace, his grace alone are we rescued. Philippians 2, 5-7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So Jesus, who was fully God, set aside his own interests and left perfect heaven to dwell on sinful earth so that he could rescue sinful mankind, those who were spiritually dead, So, he was born in the likeness of men to bring us from death to life. And how does Jesus bring dead sinners to life? Well, through the atoning work on the cross. Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, he is the propitiation for our sins. (laughs) John makes it clear that we have not loved God ourselves, but in fact, Due to our sinful flesh and total depravity, we cannot love God. We cannot love God on our own. Rather, God has demonstrated his love for us. So we are not deserving of God's love, but in his grace and mercy, he richly pours out his love in sending uh, Jesus to die on the cross, to make propitiation for our sins. And there's no greater love than this. So what, is, what does propitiation mean? Well, it simply means to satisfy or to appease uh, the wrath of God. To satisfy or to appease the wrath of God. So as we are uh, sinful mankind, rebelled against God, we are deserving of his judgment. And so there has to be satisfaction of God's wrath. There has to be someone to appease God's wrath. Well, we're talking about love. So w- Why why would a loving God also be a wrathful God? I think that's a a question we have to wrestle with when we think about this. Well, God is holy. He's holy. So God is not merely love. He is love, but he is many other things as well. We have all kinds of other uh, attributes that we could ascribe to God as we see in the scriptures. So God is also holy. He is set apart. He is perfect. He is distinct from us. And our sin separates us from God. We are imperfect, sinful creatures. And our God would not be God if he did not uphold justice. He would not be God if he did not uphold perfect justice. Now, I confess, it may be difficult at times to, uh, to, to figure out exactly how all of God's attributes fit together. Uh, our minds can't fully grasp that at times. Um, but God must uphold his character. He is holy. He is holy. And it would be unloving for God to not execute justice. God is both perfect in love, but he is also perfect in justice. God is perfect in every single one of his attributes. But the good news is that even though we are deserving of his judgment, uh, God made a way for us to escape that judgment. He made a way for us to escape his wrath. Again, we are born into sin. We are born as enemies of God. And last week, uh, Pastor Ken mentioned uh, this, the, the, the root word for peace or shalom uh, is to pay back. And he, he talked about in from Colossians 1 that we are, our sins are paid for by the precious blood of Jesus. Our sins are pray, play, paid for by the work of Christ on the cross. His shedding of His blood. So we have peace with God. Our sins are paid for by the work of Christ on the cross uh, and His precious blood being shed for us. God would have been just to leave us in our sinful state, but in His love, He didn't. In His great love for you and I and all of creation, He made a way for us to be rescued. He made a way for us to experience His grace and mercy. 2 Corinthians 5 21. This is talking about Jesus. He made him to be sin, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless, but he made him to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus bore our sins on the tree. He took our sin upon his shoulders. He took the punishment that you and I deserve and he gave us his righteousness. 1 Peter three eighteen, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. So he is righteous, and he suffered for our unrighteousness. He suffered for the sinful mankind that he created. Why? That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So we, in coming to Christ, put to death, the flesh, our old man, our old self, and we are made alive in the Spirit. And we, we, we uh, saw that demonstrated by our baptisms this morning, uh, that Micah and Nora have died to their sinful flesh, they've died to their old self, and they have trusted in Christ alone to rescue them, and they were raised up out of the water uh, to show that they are going to walk in newness of life. And, and so, praise be to God for that uh, ordinance of baptism that demonstrates that so vividly for us. So Jesus satisfied the wrath of God on the cross for us. Jesus lived a sinless life. He was the perfect sacrifice that we needed in order for us to be made right with God, in order for our sins to be atoned for. God will pour out his wrath. It will either be on you or it will be on his son. And so if you're here this morning, and you have not trusted in Jesus alone to rescue you from sin and death, then unless you trust in Christ, one day when you stand before our Father, He and His justice will condemn you to eternal separation from Him because you are sinful and you've rebelled against Him. That is the just payment for your sin. The wages of sin is death. So I urge you, friend, in love, to turn from your sin and to come to experience the love of God in Christ Jesus who made a way for you to be forgiven. If you would simply trust in him, place your faith in Christ, turn away from your sin, then you will be saved. And you will no longer bear the judgment that you deserve, but Christ will bear it for you on the cross. And so, friend, I urge you in love to respond to the gospel this morning because that is the only hope that you have, to be rescued from sin and death. So God shows his love for us by sending Jesus. And in light of God's love, we ought to love one another. So God's love ought to compel us to love one another. John says that whoever does not love does not know God and has not been born again. Whoever does not love does not know God and has not been born again. Now, disclaimer here, just because somebody loves somebody else doesn't necessarily mean that they have been born again, that they are a Christian. But the lives of Christians are to be marked by love. So that is one indication of a, a Christian's uh, that, that somebody has come to faith in Christ that they do love. But John says in John 15 that everyone loves their own. Everyone loves their own. He's talking about the world. Everyone in the world loves those who are also of the world. And you think about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors love those, uh, do the same? So everyone loves Somebody who loves them, right? Even sinners who have not trusted in Christ love people who love them, right? And so just because somebody loves doesn't necessarily mean that they are a believer. But Christians' lives are to be marked by love. So what does it mean to be born again and to know God? Well, born again, we we see John chapter 3 uh, is a great example of this where Nicodemus has his encounter with Jesus. And Jesus says that you must be born again, and Nicodemus is confused. But essentially what he's saying there is that we need a new heart. We need to be regenerated. We need our heart of stone to be taken out and to, be, to receive the heart of flesh that comes through faith in Christ. So we need to respond to the gospel. We need God to, to make our hearts alive. We need a new heart in order to be saved. To know God is to not merely state that you believe in God intellectually, or to state that you think that God exists, that there's a God out there. No, to to know God is to have relationship with God, to entrust yourself to God, To, to say that I am trusting in Jesus alone to rescue me from sin and death. That is the only way that we can know God, is if we entrust ourselves to him and have a right relationship with him. So to know God is not merely to intellectually state that there is a God out there, but it's to actually intimately know God and to have a right relationship with him through Jesus' work on the cross and his resurrection. So loving God, we we can love God as we are born again, and as we know him, we can love him. And as we love God, we ought to love one another, as we see in the great commandment and the second great commandment. Uh, We are to love God with everything in our being but we are also to love our neighbor as ourselves, And Jesus summarizes the law in those two, to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, none of us will love perfectly, of course. And so we are not God, and so we will not love perfectly. Um, you probably, I know for me, even this morning, did not love perfectly. Uh, you all could probably say the same thing. We do not love perfectly because we are sinners. However, a Christian's life ought to increasingly uh, look more and more loving. Uh, Because we are all on this journey of sanctification, we are to be made more holy in the sense that we are to love one another. So if we are growing in Christ's likeness, then we ought to be growing in love for others. That is a mark of our sanctification. So if we love God, if we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, then our lives ought to increasingly look more and more loving, to look more and more like God who has so richly displayed his love for us. So what does it look like to love one another? Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go into a whole bunch of specifics this morning. I'm going to talk about this very briefly. But just generally speaking, one thing I want to say is that to love somebody else uh, is to, in, in one sense, to lay down your life for them, to lay down your life for another person. And I get this from 1 John 3.16. You can just look uh, on a couple of verses before where we're at this morning. 1 John 3.16 says this, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So, very simple, uh, yet very difficult thing to apply, right? So, Jesus laid down his life for us, and so followers of Jesus ought to lay down their lives for brothers and sisters in Christ. So, we lay down our lives for one another. Another way, maybe, to put this is. What we see in John chapter 13, which Jesus, uh, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, I think that's a picture of laying down your life uh, for somebody else as well. Of course, we see that on the cross. But tangibly speaking, in his ministry on, on earth, we also see that he washed the disciples' feet. Now, this was the task that was reserved for the lowliest of lowly servants, uh, that, that they would wash the, um, uh, the people's feet. Uh, this was the lowliest task that you could do. But Jesus took up his towel and his wash basin and he got down on his knees and he washed the disciples' feet. And they're kind of taken aback as he's doing that. And they're questioning, Jesus, why are you doing this? Why are you washing our feet? We should be washing you. And, and, and Jesus continues to persist. Uh, he's going to wash their feet. And after he washes their feet, he says, now you do this to one another. You do this to one another. Now, I don't think he's literally saying that we should wash one another's feet, thank God. But in a spiritual sense, we are to wash one another's feet. We are to, to, to perform the lowliest of tasks for one another because we love one another. Because we have experienced God's love through Christ and now we ought to lay down our lives for one another and we ought to wash one another's feet. We are called to humbly serve one another just as Jesus humbly served us. So I think this, so that's just generally speaking, and you can play that out in your base group specifically how that might look, but I do want to touch on another aspect of this that I think is particularly, um, that particularly speaks to our culture at large uh, and, and even in our church. Uh, so this also means that we have to be willing to be served, right? We have to be willing to receive from brothers and sisters in Christ. So I believe that in our pride, sometimes we don't want others to serve us, right? We don't want somebody to, to do something for us because then we feel like, oh, well, I've got to pay them back. I've got to, I've got to do something for them now and I'm, I'm indebted to them. Or really, it's just a culture of independence, right? That, that's kind of a part of our culture at large. Is that we like to be independent, self-sufficient. We don't need anybody else. We can take care of ourselves. That's kind of the mindset that I fear that sometimes can slip into us, uh, into the church even. And so, uh, so we have to be willing to be uh, to, to be served uh, in order for us to obey this command to serve one another, to wash one another's feet. So we, I fear, sometimes reject help out of a out of a desire to be self-sufficient, to be independent. And even though it may be a blessing at times for somebody to serve us in a specific way that they've offered, but we say no and, uh, and, and then we miss out on that blessing of a brother or sister being able to lay down their life and to wash our feet. The reality is though, church, is that we are not self-sufficient. We are not self-sufficient. We are completely dependent upon God and we are also dependent on one another. We were made for gospel community. We were made to do life together. We were made to lay down our lives for one another and to serve one another, to wash one another's feet. So my encouragement this morning is to to be intentional, to look out for opportunities, to lay down your life for others, to wash one another's feet and to where you can deny yourself and sacrificially serve one another. But also be willing to receive, be willing to let somebody uh, serve you. Uh, It it can be difficult as a culture for us to let somebody to serve us because we want to be self-sufficient. And this is uh, a part of um, what we want to see happen in our base groups, where we truly intimately get to know one another, to where we can actually know what's going on in each other's lives, and where we can know how it would be a blessing to serve somebody. We can know where somebody is struggling in their life, and we we can offer to help them. We can offer to serve them. Uh, in, in whatever capacity it might be that we can meet. And so it, we, the, our base groups allow us to intimately know one another, know what the needs are, and then also uh, allow for that opportunity for somebody to serve, uh, for, serve somebody within our church, serve somebody within our base group. And I also, again, encourage you to be open to receiving that service as well. And I know that it's hard to do that at times, but again, God has made us for community, and we need one another. So, as we love uh, one another and others around us, we are displaying to the world around us God's love. They will know God's love by our love for one another, John 17. So, we love, as we love one another, as we lay down our lives for one another, as we wash one another's feet, then it is also an evangelistic opportunity for the world to see the love of Christ through his church. And so, as we love one another, we are putting on display the abundant love of our Father, who loved us in the greatest way imaginable, by laying down his life on by dying on the cross, being buried, and rising on the third day. And so as we love others, we are showing to them that we are the redeemed people of God in whom the Holy Spirit abides. We are displaying the gospel to those around us. So, Church, God is love. And God demonstrates his love for us by sending his son into the world to rescue us from sin and death. And again, perhaps you're here this morning and you're just longing. You're longing for uh, affection from our perfectly heaven, perfect heavenly father. And you are not in a right relationship with him right now. You are separated from him by sin because you've rebelled against him and you are longing for that intimate relationship with your heavenly Father who made you, then again, I urge you to receive God's gracious and abundant love that was displayed in his sending of his son to rescue sinners from death by his perfect life and his death and his resurrection. Receive his love this morning by faith. Trust in Jesus alone to save you from your sins. God desires to be in a relationship with you. And so I urge you in love to place your faith in Jesus alone to rescue you because he alone can save you from sin and death. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I encourage you to rejoice in the incarnation this Advent season because in the incarnation we see God's abundant love for you and I. Rejoice and delight in the fact that God became man to rescue you and I from sin and death, and there is no greater love than that. So may we focus intently on God's love this Advent season, and may we also look forward to Jesus' second coming, knowing that as the Father sent him the first time, he will send him again, and all things will be made new. All things will be made right, There will be no more sin and there will be no more suffering. All things will be made right. So look forward to that second coming of Jesus as well. And as we await the return of Christ as well, may we rest in the truth that absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So church family, as we journey through this life and await the the return of our precious Savior, may we rejoice in God's great love for us through Christ. May we rest in the fact that nothing can separate us from his love in Christ Jesus. And may we display and declare his love to the world around us. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your love. We praise you that you are a good father who cares for his children, who provides for our everyday needs, who loves to commune with us and hear from us through prayer who delights to be in relationship with us. Lord, we thank you for your abundant love. We are so undeserving of it, yet you lavish us with it. And we thank you that you have lavished us with it in the greatest way imaginable, through your precious Son, through sending him into this world to rescue us from sin and death, God, we are so, so grateful to you for the demonstration of your love through Christ, that you sent him to be the propitiation for our sins, to satisfy your righteous wrath, your righteous judgment for our sin. We thank you so much, Lord, that that you sent Christ to pay the penalty for our sin, to live a perfect, spotless, righteous life, to die in our place on the cross, to shed your precious blood so that we might have peace with you through faith in Jesus. Lord, I pray for my friends in this room who have not come to you in faith, who have not put all of their trust in Jesus to rescue them from their sin and death, who have not experienced your great love through Christ, Oh God, I beg you to move in their hearts right now, that you would soften their hearts, that you would take out their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh, that they would come to know you by faith in Jesus. God, would you do that for your glory? Lord, praise you for those whom you have called to yourself, who know you by faith. Lord, would you empower us to love one another, just as you have loved us by laying down your life for us. Lord, would we love you? Would we love one another and lay our lives down for one another? God, I pray that you would also help us to receive that love from one another. Humble each of us, and may we be willing and joyful to receive the love from our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, we praise you for the truth, that nothing can separate us from your love, not even death. And so, God, may we rest in your great love for us as we await your return, and may we display your glorious love to the world around us as we love one another and as we declare your love to others as well. We ask all this in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen.